Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Victoria Orphan. Uh, she's a James Irvine Professor of Environmental Science and Geobiology at Caltech. We're going to talk about the ecology of uh, microbes and uh, the different uh, minerals and elements and things that they cycle, carbon, sulfur, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, Victoria, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So what, what are you studying and uh, what's the context of it? Yeah, so I'll start with a you know twenty thousand foot view of sort of what I view as our mission in the lab, and that is really to understand uh, how microorganisms function in natural environments and the types of interactions that are going on between uh, the undomesticated organisms that exist in the environment, and really how these organisms uh, influence the cycling of globally important uh, geo chemical systems like carbon, nitrogen, uh, sulfur. Okay. So where do you, like what, you know, there's a big world out there. Where do you study them in the oceans or, uh, you know, yeah. in what environments? Yeah, a lot of our work is focused on um, deep ocean ecosystems. We do a lot of work in, in marine sediments and environments that uh, we would consider to be extreme. So these are places where, we have methane that is um, venting to the seafloor uh, or places where you have hydrothermal uh, activities and, and also even deep within the earth, the so sort of subsea floor biosphere as it's, as it's called. And so trying to understand how microorganisms make a living deep in the earth. Well, I just visited uh, Yellowstone. They have uh, these, you know, these geysers with all these different colored rocks and, you know, they talk about the microbial mats that are there and, that was that was more accessible. It sounds like than the places that you work, but but it was really cool, you know, to see all the different colors and uh, you, you can't. I didn't have a microscope with me, but it was uh, it was pretty cool to see the microbes at work. Yeah, somewhat, I, think, so. I think if you asked uh, any microbial ecologist, they would name Yellowstone as sort of one of the the playgrounds for understanding uh, the incredible microbial life that exists on the planet, and it's it's pretty exciting that you can actually visually see all of the diversity through like these these colors and the mineral transformations that are going on at um, crazy temperatures and pHs. Um, so it's mm. it's a cool place. Yeah. So have you been able to visit some of the sites you're talking about? Have you, have you been able to go to a black smoker or any of these places in the deep ocean? Yeah, that's actually one of the things that I love the most about my job is, you know, I get to play explorer as much as a research scientist. And so we we do um, these extensive oceanographic expeditions out to visit the sites and we use human operated vehicles uh, or remotely operated vehicles to be able to uh, see the ecosystems that we're studying many miles uh, below the ocean surface and uh, collect samples. And so it's pretty exciting to be able to go down 
in submersibles like the Alvin with uh, my students and sort of uh, experience this amazing uh, habitat that very few people have had the privilege to see. Oh, wow. So how, how far down have you been? Have you gone to like uh, Challenger Deep, you know, the Marianas <laughs> Trench or where have you been? No, I, uh, only I think a very few uh, lucky people have visited the deepest parts of the ocean, but I've, I've been pretty deep. So I think my record is um, 3,200 meters depth, and that was a hydrothermal vent system uh, off of the Pacific Antarctic Ridge, um, so heading towards Antarctica, and there's a was an unexplored hydrothermal vent system that we had a chance to to visit and uh, learn about sort of the the life, animal life and microbial life at that site. I'm not. So when, when you visited some of these features in the ocean, what did you see? Like what did looking at them for you know maybe a half hour or however however long? Like what did you see that you didn't know before? Just visually, anything? Yeah, um, we've been doing some work off of Costa Rica recently, which has been pretty exciting. There's a whole series of um, seamount systems that are venting methane. And uh, in these systems, uh, one of the most remarkable animal discoveries were these organisms called Yeti crabs. And these are um, basically they're crabs, but they have a, a symbiosis with sulfur oxidizing bacteria. So they have this furry white coat on them. And um, in order to feed their symbionts, they wave their arms over uh, this reduced sulfide rich fluids that are coming out of the, the seabed. So they're, they're basically all dancing uh, on the seafloor in these little congregations. Um, and so to, to, come upon this for the first time and and watch this this amazing activity going on that in darkness normally uh was was pretty entertaining for us to to observe and you know just by seeing their behavior we learn a lot about um how that association occurs and that's really an important um piece of of being able to visit the the seafloor and and see things in its natural habitat rather than just bringing samples up onto the ship. So, you, so in this instance, the crabs are waving their arms and what so that the stuff that's being emitted from the, the vents coats their arms and then other bacteria feed on it or how does it work? Yes. Yeah, so they, they are like farmers. So they actually eat the bacteria that they're cultivating on these um, CT that they coat their arms. And so they grow their fur coat that's made up of these sulfide oxidizing filamentous bacteria. And those bacteria need sulfide from these reducing fluids and also oxygen that's in the overlying seawater. And so the crabs basically are allowing the microorganisms to come into contact with both the oxygen and the sulfide, and they can grow these uh, dense fur coats that then they, they feed on later. So, so they, basically are growing their own food on their bodies. Oh, wow. Oh. And eating it later. Really weird. Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty pretty neat trick. But, I mean, the, the deep ocean is full of these kind of surprising associations between animals and, and microbes uh, and microbes that are also doing um, unique chemical transformations and physical transformations um, that, you know, we've only begun to scratch the surface of right now. 
So what um what are you trying to figure out? Are you looking more at how the uh, the macroorganism, you know, like the crab, interacts with its its microbiome, or are you focusing more on the microbiome and looking at how that interacts and what chemicals it produces and metabolizes? Like, where's your focus? Yeah, a lot of our focus are uh, much more on the the micro scale. You know, we have the the benefit of seeing all of these amazing um, macroscopic manifestations of microbes interacting with with uh, chemical fluids in the seafloor, but really what we're interested in are the microorganisms themselves that live in the sediments that uh, specifically are involved in the transformation of methane through a process called anaerobic oxidation of methane. And so just like the sulfur oxidizing microbe can form a symbiosis with the Yeti crab, uh, we're looking at microbial symbiosis that is occurring between two different types of microorganisms. So an archaea and a bacteria that uses sulfate from from seawater. And so they form these nice structured communities and then collectively basically remove methane that's coming out of the the seafloor using sulfate in the overlying seawater. And in doing that, they convert that sulfate into hydrogen sulfide that then becomes fuel for things like the sulfur oxidizing bacteria that are growing on the Yeti crab. And so everything is sort of intimately connected all through this, this chemical trophic structure uh, in the seabed. And we're interested in the process, not just because it provides food for the Yeti crab, but also because methane is a potent greenhouse gas. And we need to understand where the sources and sinks are coming from the ocean uh, in order to better understand what ends up ultimately getting into the atmosphere where it um, can cause warming. And so a lot of the implications for our research is uh, related to how microorganisms sequester that methane uh, before it becomes a problem uh, through greenhouse gas effects and warming effects in the uh, atmosphere. At what scale, I mean, can you calculate the scale at which they're, uh, they're sequestering methane? Well, so it's poorly constrained um, because we, we don't have even a good handle on all of the places where methane is venting from the seabed. It seems like the more we explore, the more we find, um, but it's thought it's that it's pretty pervasive all along the continental margins. So. And sort of rough estimate calculations suggest that this single microbial process of anaerobic oxidation of methane can remove upwards of 80% of the methane that's coming out of the the seabed. So it's a pretty um, globally important process, and it's being catalyzed by microorganisms that we don't have a lot of understanding about in terms of um, being able to grow them like... Uh, many of the common domesticated microbes like E. coli in the lab. So they, um, mm. they're coming from... Have you from... even tried to, uh, to culture some of these or the conditions are so different that you just know it wouldn't work? Yeah. So, so this has been like a labor of love of um, a number of labs now is to try to get these organisms into culture. And, and actually there've been some recent successes in getting them into enrichments but nobody's been able to grow them in pure culture. So they, they, this symbiosis with the bacteria is still um, required and it's hard to tease that apart. Um, and so you get this 
enrichments of these organisms, but but not at a level where you can uh, you know get a single pure colony of of these organisms right now. So uh, that adds to the challenges in understanding their physiology and and trying to understand the the symbiosis uh, and you know, has led to a whole assortment of sort of creative uh, methods that people have applied to try to tease apart the secrets of of how these guys are sharing energy and um, making a living on methane. Is this, um, I mean, is there a, a fixed playbook of metabolism? You know, like um, once you figure out how anyone can use methane, you can get an idea of how these guys do it. You know, maybe there's an accessible spot where creatures are, you know, oxidizing methane, and then there'll be similar methods to the way these guys do it, the Yeti crabs, you know, people in other inaccessible places. Maybe uh, that's a way in. Yeah, there there is um, definitely some something to be said for trying to find um, organisms that are maybe faster growing or, or come from a slightly less extreme environment. And uh, if there's enough similarities in terms of their their metabolic pathways, you can use that as a, as a model and a guide. And certainly some of our most successful model organisms in the lab sort of represent those, those kinds of um, those systems. And so there are some methane oxidizers that uh, grow in more shallow ecosystems, or they grow in places where the temperature is warmer. So there's, there's some organisms around high thermal vents and when you increase the temperature, you also tend to increase the growth rate of the organisms, which helps with getting them into, into the lab setting. And so some of the best successes we've seen now are, are some of these thermally adapted uh, methane oxidizers. So you're right, you're right in, uh, you know, you have to selectively pick where you're going to go after trying to, to culture these guys. So have you, um, you know, like sequenced uh, Yeti crabs? Have you looked at the you know, the shotgun genomics of the bacteria, have you, you know, how much has been done to understand their environment, at least if you can't recreate it? Yeah, we do a lot of um, applications of what we call sort of omics techniques for looking at um, microbial communities in, in the environments. And, and, you know, certainly with sequencing technology improving and becoming more cost effective, this is uh, becoming sort of bread and butter for a lot of uh, microbial ecologists that work with environmental systems. So we can learn a lot about the potential metabolisms of microorganisms by reconstructing their genomes directly out of environmental samples. So, you know, it used to be that we had a very narrow view of diversity of microbes in the environment through what we could culture. And that turns out to be on the order of maybe like 1% of the true diversity that exists uh, in the environment. And, and, you know, we are missing entire phyla of, of microbial life. Uh, you know, you can think of it like not knowing that there were mollusks out there, you know, so no clams, no snails, no octopus, um, until you were able to see them through the lens of looking at their DNA, uh, in the environment. So it's, it's a pretty exciting time just, just in terms of discovery of microbial life. You know, the more we're able to apply these sequence-based methods, the more we're, we're learning just in terms of the diversity that exists on our planet. Um, 
But the, the true challenge then is how do you take this blueprint that's given to us through looking at the genomes and, and actually then trying to understand the true function of these organisms in the environment and the kinds of interactions that are going on uh, in between different types of, of organisms um, in the absence of being able to grow them in the laboratory. And so that's that's been really the big focus of my my group is, is how we can apply some of these culture independent techniques that come from the geosciences using things like stable isotopes uh, to try to trace what these organisms are metabolizing in the environment and, um, and how much of that is dependent upon different organisms um, working together to be able to, to break down substrates as we see with the anaerobic oxidation of methane. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Could you recreate any of this in the lab? You know, what if you got like a, you know, you made a special tank. It was like a six foot tall cylinder, you know, clear and you bubbled methane in at the bottom. And, you know, you try to encourage the, the growth of, uh, you know, methane loving bacteria, at least. Yeah. And you could recreate, you know, and put a heating element and maybe uh, you could create, you could recreate something like that. Yeah, you you know you're not too far off. Um, yeah, actually, we we are able to keep these organisms in in their environmental samples um, going in the lab for for many months at a time. And one of the things that works in our favor for studying anaerobic oxidation of methane is that the organisms grow very slowly. So they their doubling times are sort of on the order of every three months, which means that you know it, it's challenging to to run the experiments, but um, they also uh, can be maintained in, in the sediments as long as you give them, you know, the basics that they need. So if you provide them with enough methane and enough sulfate, they'll, they'll continue to, to go. Um, so we've been maintaining them in sort of static incubations. And we also now have just recently started um, trying to recreate the pressure high pressure environments of the deep sea. So we have these large um, pressure vessels uh, to see if we can sort of goose their metabolism to, um, to grow a little bit more as they might see uh, in, in situ where the, the methane uh, concentrations are much higher than what we're able to do in the lab under just atmospheric pressure. So what does the, uh, the chemistry look like? Do they, they start with methane and what's the end products? Through this anaerobic oxidation of methane coupled to sulfate, the end products are um, CO2 and hydrogen sulfide. Um, we now know, though, that these methane oxidizing organisms can also couple methane oxidation to other electron acceptors. So um, there's a group of these organisms in freshwater environments that can couple to nitrate. Uh, and there's a set of organisms that are um, less well studied that can um, couple their metabolism to metal oxides. So things like iron and manganese. Um, and so it's our understanding of all of the different types of ways that organisms can eke out a living coupling methane to, to different energy sources uh, is, is still expanding right now. Um, but it seems like the, um, if you can make a thermodynamic prediction of a potentially favorable coupling, um, chances are we're going to find it 
in the environment eventually. Hmm. Okay. Actually, with that thought, are there any other candidate, uh, you know, chemicals that could support life that we don't know about yet and we haven't observed? Uh, I can only tell you through um, the lens of methane utilization. I can, um, in terms of other energy sources or, or redox couplings, um, I think arsenic is one that is predicted to occur that hasn't been shown yet. Um, selenate might be another one. Uh, and so there's, there's more sort of exotic and maybe less um, sort of less well distributed on the globe uh, potential electron acceptors that um, might also support methane based life. And so those kinds of um, exotic interactions uh, I think are, are definitely of interest in thinking about the full menu of, of ways that microorganisms can tap into energy and that might have been more important um, at, at, through Earth's history and um, also starting to think about the, the range of metabolisms that could support life potentially um, off of Earth. You know, if we think about some of the NASA, NASA missions that are coming up, um, certainly it's part of the the great thought experiment for researchers who study organisms in extreme environments to start thinking about what what might constrain where life could exist um, off of Earth. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you're contacted ever by planetary scientists. You know, if they want to if they want to know if life is possible, you know, in the underground oceans on various planets, et cetera, or under different conditions. Yeah, it's one of the the advantages of being at Caltech uh, is this close connection to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, JPL. And um, there's certainly a lot of uh, cross-talk between the scientists up at JPL and, and folks uh, in the Geological and Planetary Science Division at, at Caltech. And um, certainly as these missions are taking more of a, a life-centric focus or thinking about habitable um, places, uh, both on Mars and, and also ocean world environments, um, sort of Europa and Celadus. Uh, there's been a, a lot of, of conversations and white papers being written about um, what, what to look for. So what sort of biosignatures might exist? What are the possible metabolisms? Uh, so it's it's becoming much more of a, um, a common topic of conversation um, than, uh, say, 20 years ago, where it was kind of a, an interesting thought topic, uh, but not necessarily uh, with the possibility of an actual mission <laughs> to, to look for this. So it's an exciting right, time. Right. Yeah. What do you think you're going to be able to uh, shed light on you know, in, soon, in the next six months or a year? Anything that uh, you're on the edge of figuring out? Well, we've been, um, again, it, from looking at anaerobic oxidation of methane, uh, we have recently uh, been very interested in how the two organisms are engaged in this symbiosis. And for many decades, we the assumption was this was through a diffusible chemical intermediate that was passed from the uh, methane oxidizing archaea to the sulfate reducing bacteria. Uh, a few years ago, we started to um, develop new evidence that maybe that there was a much more 
intimate physical connection where electrons were passed um, extracellularly from the methane oxidizing archaea to the sulfate reducing uh, bacteria. So not a diffusible chemical, but, but rather direct sort of electrical connections between these organisms. So that was pretty exciting. And we've been continuing to uh, explore that as a, as a viable mechanism that allows these organisms to work together in combining methane with, with sulfate. Um, and so our, quick, yeah, go quick ahead. question here. Do you think that, uh, you know, right now when we burn natural gas, you know, which I guess is methane, you know, we get all these combustion byproducts. It's aerobic. Um, do you think there may be a way figured out by studying the bacteria, how to do it anaerobically and make it favorable and, uh, you know, make it an industrial process that uses bacteria? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I, there are definitely um, a number of labs that are interested in, in trying to learn from what we've discovered in looking at these natural methane oxidizing communities um, about their specific genes that are involved in, in the methane oxidation process um, with the potential maybe of genetically engineering maybe faster growing organisms to do these processes in a more industrial um, setting. So, so yes, there's, I think there are important industrial applications that might take advantage of the, um, sort of the genetic uh, chassis that are in these slower growing organisms. But I, I, I think it would be hard maybe to, to use the organisms themselves and, um, be able to scale it up to an industrial process, um, just given what we've we've learned about their physiology so far. Well, yeah. So that was back to an earlier question. Are, are there other bacteria that are similar that are methane loving, methane oxidizing that are in accessible environments or might be candidates for industrial use in like a digester? Yeah, there there are other um, organisms certainly that ha- can make a living on methane. Um, many of those use oxygen and instead of doing this through an anaerobic metabolism. Uh, so these, they call them methanotrophic, mostly bacteria. And those organisms are being used um, in a variety of different contexts right now. Um, and they grow, tend to grow a little bit faster. Um, and there are cultured representatives of them. So it's a, it's a totally different set of um, uh, metabolic machinery that they use to oxidize methane coupled to oxygen. So it's, um, it's much more energetically favorable than these archaea that are doing it through um, an anaerobic pathway where they're getting just a fraction of, of the energy that you would be able to recover with oxygen. Have you looked for phages that interact with the archaea? Yeah. That's a great question. Um, we have a new uh, program in the lab that's focused on looking at viruses and bacteriophages in these methane seep ecosystems. And uh, we have some sort of early uh, indications that there are viruses that are connected to these methane oxidizing uh, archaea, but it's still early on. And um, you know, as challenging as it is to to study uncultured 
bacteria and archaea in the environment, you can add another layer of challenge to try to understand the, the viruses that are infecting them because it's uh, when you use metagenomic types of techniques to, to look at the diversity of viruses in these environments, uh, most of that data comes back as completely unknown. <laughs> so so we're, we've barely begun to scratch the surface in terms of the diversity of phages out there. And um, it's going to take a while to start linking that um, sort of unknown gene space to actual viruses that are infecting uh, the organisms themselves. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Victoria, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Yeah, best place is to uh, look at our website. So we have um, Orphan Lab, uh, www.orphanlab.edu. And, or you can find me on the, the Caltech Geobiology Option webpage at Caltech. Okay, well, very good. Victoria, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's wonderful talking to you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.